This is KMTT. This is Ezra Beck, and I want to take a minute for my regular broadcasting. Because this week is the KMTT Appreciation Drive Week. Once a year, and only once a year, we take a few minutes for the regular broadcasting to appeal to our listeners who are the only source of support for KMTT. KMTT is a strictly 100% listener-supported uh, program. And therefore, we have no choice, but once a year, we have to appeal to you to show your appreciation if you have appreciated, if you've learned on this program, and you want the program to continue, to show it in a material manner. Amen, Kemach, and Torah. And therefore, we're uh, approaching, we're appealing to the listener base, to the KMTT worldwide community, to take a few minutes this week to show the appreciation by supporting, by giving donations, donation to keep the uh, keep the program going. And how much is KMTT worth to you? It depends on how much you can afford. Uh, I would say that that's the basic membership fee for a year. It would be it would be nice if you could send us twenty to twenty five dollars. And if you want to show your appreciation per share, I'd just like to remind you that there are over and uh, something like two hundred shiurim, two hundred episodes a year, so a hundred hours of programming. Coffee would be significant if we added up all those shiurim. And so show, you know, give what you can, and keep the program going. And I'm going to give you two phone numbers. One for the United States, one for Israel, so that you can immediately call to get more information or to make your pledge. And of course, on the on the net, you can also donate from, from our website at www.kimitzion, K-I-M-I-T-Z-I-O-N dot O-R-G. And in New York, the phone number is two one two seven three two four eight seven four. It's a number of friends of Shabbat Havetzion. And in Israel. 052-545-6023. And now back to our regular programming. In the final two sessions of this series, we will talk about questions of war in halacha. We won't deal with all the possible questions, which would require a much larger format, and not with all the questions uh, that come up, both in hashkafa and halacha. But we will try to focus especially on the question of the relationship between the king or the political system and war. We'll especially be dealing uh, with what is called in international law, use ad bellum, in other words, the justice of war, when is a war just, as opposed to use in bello, justice in war. What is the proper way to conduct the war? Although those questions, of course, which have become pronounced as a result of the a Goldstone Commission report, etc., those things may come up next time. So we will deal with the different justifications or different situations where war is justified and what is the status of the king regarding the requirement or possibility of engaging in war. First, we have to start off by raising the basic question, what is the halachic status of war in general? Obviously, the very possibility of war in which people inevitably kill each other 
is a problematic situation vis-a-vis the Torah prohibition of murder. And by the way, that prohibition exists, of course, even if people willingly take upon themselves the danger of death. In other words, a war that is held between two volunteer armies also raises questions of the prohibition of Shfichud Damim. Even a duel between two people who have willingly engaged in a duel is also prohibited, or at least questionable, from a point of view of the Isur the prohibition to murder. So it stands to reason that there is a need for a heter, for some type of matir, for some kind of reason that allows us to transcend or to ignore for our purposes the prohibition of killing in order to justify any type of war. And we have to find out what kind of such justification is possible. Here we will return to a theme that we've seen a number of times in the series, the theme of kachol hagoyim. To what extent does the definition of a non-Jewish polity define in some way the contours of the legitimate authority of the Jewish ruler? Here we have an interesting statement of the Nitziv regarding war. It's the Nitziv Ambreshit, Periktet Pasuk Hei. The Pasuk is uh, in the enumeration of the commandments to Bnei Noach. The Pasuk says, Ve'ach et dimchem l'nashotechem et rosh, miyad kol chayad v'shanu, u'miyad adam, miyad ish achiv et rosh et nefesh adam. It's the reiteration of the prohibition of murder, which applies to Pnei Noach. And the Nitziv says as follows, Miyadi Shachiv, Perosh HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Eimatai HaAdam Ne'enash, Bisha'ash Ra'oi Linhog Ba'achava. Ma she'en kan, Bisha'at Milchama, Ve'eit Lisno, Az Eit Laharog, Ve'ein Onesh Al Zeklal. And Tziv says as follows, God specified that a person is culpable, when is a person culpable for murder? At a time when brotherly conduct is called for. Not so in time of war. Then it is a time to kill, and there is no culpability whatever, for that is how the world was founded. Then Tziv seems to be saying that there is a situation in the world of Eid Milchama, there is a situation when there is war, when a war is being waged, then non-Jews are not culpable or not responsible for the prohibition of Retzach. In other words, the existence of a war overcomes, defers the prohibition of homicide. It would seem that there's no specific stipulation when war is justified and when it is not justified. But the very reality that there is the and war being engaged in, that is enough to exclude the situation from the Isur Shvichudamim that exists among non-Jews. On the other hand, a number of Achronim have suggested that there might be a proof from the Gemara that there is a prohibition for non-Jews to engage in war. The Gemara is a Gemara in Sanhedrin, Daphne Teda Mudalev, Regarding the relationship between uh, Hilchot Bnei Noach and Hilchot uh, Taryag Mitzvot, the Gemara asks, 
if we have a principle that the, there's nothing that is prohibited for a non-Jew and permitted for a Jew, how about Yifat Torah? What about the Yifat Torah, which is a special heter for, that the Torah gives for Jews? The Gemara answers, Hatam Mishum Delav Bnei Kibush Ninhu. Because uh, the Kibush is not, does not apply to non-Jews. So, uh, a number of Achronim, for instance, the Chsam Sofer and the Chuvin Yoradeh, Simon Yotet, and uh, the Dvaravram, they say that the meaning of the Gemara, the Lav B'nei Kibush Ninhu, does not mean that they do not have the power of occupation. Indeed, there is a Kenyan, if a non-Jewish army conquers a land, there is a Kenyan as far as Dine Mamonot. However, it is prohibited. The Gemara means to say that it's prohibited for non-Jews to engage in kibush. So, of course, the question would be here, what exactly is kibush? We're adding here, it could be that they mean to say that it is prohibited for a non-Jew to engage in aggressive war. A war of self-defense is permitted, but a war of aggression in order to occupy other people's land, that is prohibited. Or if we were to elaborate this question, this would require a much clearer definition of what exactly are the definitions of aggression, what are the definitions of self-defense, al-pi halacha. By the very nature of Hilchot Noach, we don't have many tshuvas that are written. It is not that usual for non-Jews to write a shayla and paskin if a certain war is justified al-pi halacha or not. Therefore, it's hard to say that we have a lot of case law or a lot of discussions exactly what are the definitions of war that is justified according to Dine B'nei Noach. We will go somewhat to the question of uh, self-defense, how to define wars of self-defense in the context of uh, our discussion of halacha regarding B'nei Israel. Suffice it to say that according to many Achronim, there is among non-Jews a din of Rodef, there is a law of self-defense of the individual. We won't go into all the details and to what extent is the law of Rodef among non-Jews identical to the law of Rodef among Jews. It has to do with the whole question of Bab and Machteret. But the very category of Rodef does exist. If, at least if someone is d- directly endangering himself, then he is allowed to kill, if necessary, that person to prevent him from his own danger. That does exist among non-Jews, and by extending that to a collective body, then we could say that a war of self-defense among non-Jews would be legitimate also. Let us, though, know that this requires a certain conceptual jump. To jump from the individual self-defense to collective self-defense is not that simple. First, we have to assume that there exists a collective body that its preservation is tantamount to the preservation of a life, or we have to kind of find a justification on philosophical grounds to say why every individual, in order to save the life of the community, has to be able to risk his own life. I'll already point out now that the definition of self-defense is not that simple, especially if we think about the nature of wars of self-defense in our uh, contemporary world. Usually, wars of self-defense are not defined as wars 
in which people are protecting their own lives. Rather, they're protecting the territorial integrity or the sovereignty of their political unit. It's not necessarily their lives that are in danger, but it's their existence as a political entity or, again, of the territorial integrity of the political entity. Was it justified for Britain to fight against the Nazis, even though it is not clear that the Nazis had an intent of killing all the English people? They probably did not. Maybe not of killing any English people. Their intent was to extinguish the political entity called England, or at least in the way that England had traditionally governed itself. Does that constitute self-defense halachically? Does that make Nazi Germany a rode vis-à-vis England? That's a question that is not perhaps that simple, but certainly if we go according to the line of the native, then we can say that that certainly is within the way the world sees warfare. Of course, there is an afkamina, la halacha of these issues, is may a Jew participate in such wars between non-Jews? Can a war between non-Jews be justified in a way that it would be permitted for a Jew to participate in such a war? Needless to say, given the status of most Jews in various countries during most of history, this is a rather touchy issue to dwell on publicly. Just to give an example, I'll quote a statement of the Mishnah Brewer in Siman Shin Kafted, Siman Katan Yudzayin, where he says as follows, Dehayom, kshibau mehaumot shechutz likvuleinu lishlol shalal v'lavuz vaz, bevadai mechuyavim anu latzeit bechli zayin afilu al iskem amon, ukedida de machuta, v'chein mevuar berokech v'aguda, Okay, so he says that nowadays when other nations outside of our borders come to attack us and to take away our property, certainly we have a chiyuv to go out and to fight with weapons, even if they're claiming only monetary things like Den of the Machuta and he says, as the Rokeach Naguda said, that if there's a fear that the inhabitants of the nation will be angry at us, then we can be Mechalel, in this case Mechalel Shabbos, but of course this also has to do with the fact that you'll be killing people, which is prohibited, but Mishum Eva, in this case, will be permitted. So that's the rationale of the Mishnah Burra. Of course, we could ask ourselves if the reason for writing this is Becholzot, the political situation where a uh, Jew in Russia, beginning of 20th century, is Becholzot uh, uh, concerned about how his non-Jewish community will see Jews who claim that they don't have to serve in the army. Right? We all know that Jews were not exactly excited about serving in the Tsarist army. But again, I'm just raising the question, would it be legitimate for a Jew to volunteer to fight, let's say, in a war in Iraq or in Afghanistan. A, is this considered a war that is justified for B'nai Noach? And would it be justified for Jew to participate in such a war to both endanger his life and to possibly kill non-Jews, which, of course, is prohibited on Pialach? In fact, it does seem reasonable to me that if we say that halacha mandates or allows non-Jews to create political society, 
to have their own melachim, to have their own political rulers, in fact, to establish the equivalent of a state. In order for a state to exist, it has to have the means to defend itself against encroachment from other political organizations. Assuming, again, that the Torah doesn't assume that all the non-Jewish world will all uh, create one universal state, which might be the vision of Yimod Mashiach, but certainly does not exist in our world. Given that fact, it would seem to assume that such political organizations require the ability to defend themselves in order to exist. Saying that there can be a legitimate non-Jewish melech without saying that that melech can defend himself against threats to the very existence of the malchut, if not to the lives of the individual people, but if there's a threat to the malchut himself, if there's no way of defending the malchut against such threats, then the legitimacy or the mandate the Torah gives it would certainly be very limited. So therefore it seems to me reasonable to say that non-Jews are at the very least allowed to engage in wars of self-defense when the other party is endangering the very existence of the polity. Just to sum up, uh, it is clear that even though the halacha, as we see, has to take a position if wars of self-defense are justified, and it seems to me that they would say it is justified, nevertheless, the halacha did not develop the same degree of sophistication and of detail as, for instance, the Western tradition of the discussion of the just war, as represented by, let's say, contemporary writers like Michael Walter, or, for instance, in President Obama's recent uh, Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech, uh, this was not a concern of Jews as Jews. There aren't detailed discussions about what exactly constitutes a just war. In any case, now we'll talk about what the implications of this are regarding a Jewish king. We've already mentioned a number of times the Psukim in Shmuel Aleph. When the people ask for a king, they say specifically, V'hayinu ki melech ye'aleinu, V'hayinu gam anachnu kechol hagoyim, U'shvatanu malkeinu, V'yatza lefaninu v'nilchamet milchamotenu. So it's clear that one of the goals of having a king is precisely the requirement the king will be able to lead the people into war, and it is assumed that wars are an inevitable part of political organization, certainly in the times of Tanakh, certainly as described in the Tanakh. Following this, the Mishnah in Sanhedrin Pegbed says, when describing the powers of the king, says, Umotzi lemilchemet harashut, and the king takes out, right, and again he uses the same verb as we saw in Shmuel, to Milchemet Arashut, to an optional war. We'll talk about that later, what exactly is a Milchemet Arashut, according to the decision of a Din of 71, according to the opinion of the Sanhedrin. That echoes what appeared in the first parak, the parak that deals with the authority of the Sanhedrin. Uh, the first parak of Sanhedrin, the Mishnah says... There is no taking out to Melchemet without 
the approval of the Beit Din of Shivim Mechar of the Sanhedrin. So who is the person who is doing the motzi'ing? Obviously, the Mishnah assumes that we know that it's the king. That is the function of the king. So the king, in the case of Mechemin Rashut, requires the agreement of the Sanhedrin. It would seem that the assumption is that this regards Mechemin Rashut, but some other type of milchama does not require the approval of the Sanhedrin. And indeed, of course, we have a Mishnah in Sota, which distinguishes between Melchemet HaRashut and Melchemet Mitzvah, distinguishes between two types of war, and it would assume, we could assume, by juxtaposing the two Mishnayot, to say that the king can go out to a Melchemet Mitzvah without recourse to the Sanhedrin, Whereas a Mechemer Rashut requires the approval of the Sanhedrin. That seems to be the obvious reading. And indeed, first of all, the Rambam calls the entire section regarding kings Hilchot Melachim Umilchamot. In the Frankel edition, it's Umilchamot. In some printed editions, it's Umilchamotehem. In any case, war is seen as a inevitable part of the political organization. And Rambam distinguishes clearly between Melchemet Mitzvah and Melchemet Rashut. Perkei Alach Abed. Melchemet Mitzvah eno tzarech litolba Rashut Beidin. Ela yotzei me'atzmo b'chol eit. V'kofeh ha'am l'tzet. Aval Melchemet Rashut eno motzi ha'am ba. Ela alpi Beidin shel shivim be'echad. So here Rambam specifically distinguishes between the Melchemet Rashut and Melchemet Mitzvah, and he says that a Melchemet Mitzvah, the king can engage in by himself, and he doesn't need the requirement of asking the Beit Din Shashivim Bechad, Ela Yotzei Me'atzmo Bechol Eid, V'kofeh Here Rambam adds something in addition, not only is the king the commander-in-chief, as it were, is the person who leads the nation to war, but as a king, he also has the ability and the authority to force the nation to go out to war. In other words, the king can forcibly draft people to war. And here we have an important question. Exactly is this a characteristic that only belongs to a king, is there a requirement that there be a king in order for there to be A, a legitimate war, B, a war in which people can be coerced, can be forced into participating in. As we shall see, this is not something taken for granted. In fact, the Me'iri says regarding Melchemet Arashut that the king can engage in Melchemet Arashut, but he cannot force other people to engage in it. Lo yachuf, he can't force, he can't draft people to uh, uh, take part in Melchemet Arashut without the approval of Sanhedrin. If we go back to the categories we spoke about before, then the, the king can determine by himself that we can waive the prohibition of Shvichud Damim if he deems that there is a situation of Mechemet Arashud, according to the Meiri, 
but he can't force people to participate in it. If there was a problem of shvichud damim, then we wouldn't be able to solve that problem. But we'll get to that later when we talk about the definition of mechemet arushut. I just want to add that despite what we saw in the Rambam, there seems to be another shita, the shita of the Ramban. The Ramban in Sefer Mitzvot, Lota Se Mitzvah Yudzayin, says, or seems to say at least, that the requirement of a Sanhedrin is also for Mechemet Mitzvah, not only in Mechemet Rashud, but also in Mechemet Mitzvah. So that seems to be against the Pshad of the Mishnah in Sanhedrin. Rav Aldenberg in Hilchot Medina, page Kufchet, page 108, he explains the Ramban as follows. He says, well, the Mishnah assumed that we all know the former Chemim Mitzvah, since it's a Mitzvah, since there's a need for Sanhedrin to determine what the halachic status of the war is. So certainly you have to get a Psach from the Sanhedrin that it's a case of a Mitzvah. Whereas Mechemim Arashut, whichever rationale we understand from Mechemim Arashut, we'll talk about that later, that is not under the purview of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, it's not a question of halacha, it's the question of the strategic understanding of the king. It's a chidush, that even for Mechemet Rashud, we need the agreement of the Sanhedrin, that's why the Mishnah only mentioned Mechemet Rashud. Of course, according to that, what's interesting is that we have two different functions of the Sanhedrin in Mulchama. In Mechemet Mitzvah, the decision is more of a legal one, to see if the legal requirements of the Mitzvah are fulfilled. Whereas in Mechemet Arashud, it may be more of a strategic uh, viewpoint, like the famous Gemara that appears both in Berchot and in Sanhedrin, about David HaMelech, who has a discussion uh, about what is the need to engage in war, what is the condition of the people, and is there a need to instigate uh, a Mechemet Arashud. So getting back to the question of Mechemet Mitzvah, I'm basically asking, is the function of the king just, as it were, the commander-in-chief of the army, and therefore someone else could be appointed. The king is not a necessary factor in order to wage Mechem Mitzvah. Or, on the other hand, could we say, no, the king is a necessary factor. If there is no king, then it is impossible to wage Mechem Mitzvah. Perhaps it's entirely impossible to wage Mechem Mitzvah. Or, conversely, we could say it is possible to wage Mechem Mitzvah, but perhaps it is not legal or there is no authority that enables us to draft people to engage in that Mechem Mitzvah. And indeed, uh, many of the people who see themselves as Talmudim of Rav Kook, or who quote the statement of Rav Kook that we've mentioned so many times, that another political system and a modern state can replace the authority of the king, they point specifically to this halacha as the reason why it's important to emphasize that a modern state or the state of Israel has the authority of a king because only that authority can allow the state, A, to wage war, to wage a milchemet mitzvah, and B, to uh, draft people for that war. And indeed, I must say, I came across once a booklet, anonymous booklet, written by someone obviously from the Haredi community, who tries to justify the fact that the Haredi uh, don't serve in the army. And he says simply because if we don't see the Medina, Medinat Israel, as a legitimate Malchud, 
for whatever reason, either because it was not instituted by Torah Jews, or it's not run according to the Torah, or because there's no formal melech and there's no way of having replacing a melech by other institutions. For whatever reason, he says, since there is no melech, there's no one with the authority to engage in war, and therefore there is no mitzvah to uh, engage in war. And lehefech, no one has the authority to call upon war. How should the Medina exist? That he doesn't deal with. But I'm just pointing out that it could be, according to that understanding, that transferring the authority of a melech to the state is a necessary condition in order to have a state that can wage war in order to defend it. Maybe just based on what we said in the beginning, maybe we can distinguish between two types of mechemet mitzvah. I just want to thank Rav Yari Khan, who have I spoken extensively about these issues. In any case, it could be that within the category of mechemet mitzvah, there's room to distinguish between two types of mechemet mitzvah. Pointing out that the Rambam really describes three types of mechemet mitzvah. One is mechemet shivat amamin the war of conquest of Eretz Israel in the time of Yoshua, and I'm emphasizing in the time of Yoshua. The second is Milchemet Amalek, the war against Amalek. And the third is what the Rambam defines as Ezrat Israel Miyad Sarah Balehem, the saving of Israel from an enemy and the word Habalim could be either translated as that is coming on them or that came upon them. And that has to do with the question of preventative war, which is another question we will raise next time. In any case, if we talk about those three categories, perhaps we can distinguish between the first two, Mohammed Shivat Amamim and Mohammed Amalek. In both cases, there is a specific mitzvah which justifies going to war, and it, we are performing a specific mitzvah in engaging in war. The Torah mandates us to go to war in, no, in order to perform a mitzvah. Whereas, Ezrat Yisrael Miyatzar is not a specific mitzvah, and it probably is not even a kiyum of Lo Tamorodamriyecha, because, as we said, Lo Tamorodamriyecha has its own limitations, the mitzvah to save someone from danger. It's not clear that by endangering my life, I am supposed to perform the mitzvah lo tamon And not only that, of course, it's not always clear that in a war situation or every war you are saving a specific person, but it's saving the collective entity. And uh, it could be that Ezrat Yisrael Miyatzar, that a war of self-defense is different from wars that the Torah justifies for other reasons. It could be that a war of self-defense exists also kechol Here we have a similarity to what exists in other nations, and just as we can assume that other nations, even without a formal king, have the ability to wage war, because it's unthinkable the Torah does not legitimate the existence of political systems. So therefore, a Jewish political system is not worse than any other one, and if it's legitimate for non-Jewish political entities to engage in war of self-defense, 
So it would be legitimate for a Jewish political entity to engage in a war of self-defense, even if it doesn't have all the status of a king that halacha gives us. However, if we're talking about a different type of war, wars that do not derive from the general svara of self-defense of one type or another, but wars that are halakhically justified because of the specific mitzvah of the Torah, it could be that those mitzvot of the Torah require a king in order to enforce them, or if not a king, in person at least, the transference of the authority of a king to another body. So that would allow us to say that a modern-day state, even though it doesn't fully have all the authority of a king, in other words, even if we were not to assume Rav Cook's svara that the authority of the king is transferred to a modern-day democratic state, even if we weren't to say that, but at least the right of self-defense that exists in Bnei Noach, in the entire world, certainly a Jewish political organization would have that authority also. You have been listening to KMTT Kimitzion Tetzay Torah. And once again, I wish to remind you that this is KMTT Appreciation Drive Week. And we're waiting to hear from you. Phone number in New York, 212-732-4874. And in Eretz Yisrael, 052-545-6023. Call to